This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Greetings and welcome to the Clinician to Clinician podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Today's guest is Dr. Jad Kebe, who co-authored a paper entitled Family Presence During Pulmonary Procedures, which was published this month in the Annals. Dr. Kebe is an assistant professor in the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, and he's the director of the Interstitial Lung Diseases Program there. And finally, he's also medical director of adult respiratory care. We will be discussing the concept of having family members present in the room during the performance of some of our specialties procedures, such as thoracentesis, as well as the experience at Dr. Kebe's home institution. So welcome and thank you, Dr. Kebe, for joining the podcast. I'm really looking forward to uh, an interesting discussion on a very provocative topic. Dr. Tino, thank you so much for this opportunity and I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. Great. So first question is, so what motivated your interest uh, in this work? Yeah, it's a great lead-up question. Uh, I personally had several personal experiences in medical care for close family members, and I always wanted to be involved in their care. And after uh, I became a physician, I've always wanted to treat my patients and their families as I would want to be treated myself. So I typically spend a good amount of time with them, try to answer all questions. And when it comes to procedures, I was initially apprehensive of family presence, um, especially when it came to Go Blues, and that was more so early in my residency. But then I started to include family members on their loved ones, for example, in ICU procedures like central lines, A-lines, bronchoscopies, and then, you know, the regular things like thoracentesis and abdominal paracentesis, which um, seem to be sometimes bread and butter in everyday practice. Um, but my interest in including outpatient procedures as well started mostly when we had patients come for recurrent paracentesis in the pulmonary clinic, thoracentesis. Um, I found it to be pleasantly interactive between patients, their loved ones, and myself when we talked during the procedures, and I thought the ambience was calm and anxieties were at pretty low level. So I started to look into what data is available out there, and we all know some family presence is taken quite for granted. For example, husbands, mothers, or even doulas who might be personal friends are often, if not always, offered to be present in the room when a mother is delivering a baby. Um, they're even offered to cut the placenta, which might be, you know, very gruesome or bloody for, um, for people who are not medical. Um, and I personally, you know, as I would think, kind of like many others, would, was present during deliveries when there was some sort of complication requiring an emergency section. And it was surely troubling to the family member, but someone typically stayed behind to explain things to them and make sure they were okay while the uh, woman was being taken care of, as well as the the baby to be born. So uh, from a scholarly standpoint, I think pediatric data has been present for quite a long time, and it shows that parents are very often, if not always, as well included in the care of their children, um, even in urgent procedures in an emergency setting, which is probably a very high-stress situation for everyone involved. So interestingly, in the 1991 article we cited by Bachner, it noted that the physicians seemed more likely than nurses to ask parents to step out, um, and at times did not even give them the option to stay. Uh, but then on the other hand, in other articles, um, 
parents' presence in the ICU, especially for procedures, pediatric ICUs, that is, showed that um, this, um, uh, this practice decreased anxiety pretty much all around. In regarding code blues in, in adult ICUs, there's a lot of debate out there about it, but also evidence that it might decrease long-term trauma, feeling, especially PTSD. I still think, you know, some concerns are valid, like family interference with the resuscitation process or maybe yelling something like, you know, you're the doctor who killed my dad, for example, which I heard someone say to uh, one of my residents when I was an intern when uh, he stopped the code. Or So I think wisdom would be important in such situations. And, of course, I think a prior knowledge of the situation and dynamics around it might guide the decision-making. So kind of all of this is, at a, is a background to um, what, um, what's made me interested in, in such a process. So what point of procedures have you specifically targeted for the conversation to allow the presence of families in the room? Yeah, that's another excellent question. Um, we, we found that patients who receive local anesthesia and can interact well with their family uh, or their loved one would be a great start. Um, in addition, those who receive conscious sedation, um, you know, we thought it would be great for them to drift under sedation while next to a loved one, even holding hands. And on the other end of the procedure, even wake up immediately to the touch and voice of the person who is with them, um, whose touch and voice is familiar um, to them as well. So in light of this, and of course, you know, our, this article focuses on non-ICU procedures, uh, we decided to include, you know, most things we do, such as bronchoscopies, um, and sometimes EBUS if we happen to do them under conscious sedation, which is not our common practice here but also thoracentesis, chest tube, and indwelling pleural catheter placement, which you know, is known as Plurex um, as well for brevity. So um, our article is limited to, to lung procedures, mm -hmm. and, and these are the most common ones that, that we do. Okay. And so one of the things you talked about in the paper was your approach, the approach that you've developed to actually execute the presence of family members at the bedside. So I think it'd be interesting for our audience to hear what the process that you've developed um, has been. Yeah, so um, most importantly, I think to begin with, we wanna make sure that our own team is, is on the same page about you know, the procedure and, and the plan ahead. So just like we discussed, what is the plan for the procedure that we will do, um, we would also want to make sure that everyone is um, in agreement with having an extra person who is not the patient um, and who's not part of our team in the room. So, so this happens you know, reasonably frequently, especially if we have new staff that join the uh, suite area, for example. So we just, well, then um, I typically, you know, meet with the patient. We talk about the plan for the procedure, sign a consent, um, and then ask the patient more so in a private setting so that uh, maybe the family member is not there directly if, if they want the family member to be there. And if um, they do, then I, um, I invite um, the family member to see if they would want to be in. And if they agree, then, you know, I speak to them through a process of, of counseling and, and there's a lot of questions and, um, and that. And we're going to make sure there's a seat for the patient in there. The last thing we want is for the patient to faint and fall so being in the seat would be, you know, safer for them. And then during the procedure, we um, update the person or persons who are in the room 
about uh, what the process is, even show them you know, images such as in a bronchoscopy of what is going on, and then debrief them at the end of the procedure of what we did and what the plan um, after the procedure is. So uh, one of the, another um, point that you made in the paper is that you have a, a number of points of counseling and procedural issues that you review with the family members before you actually start the procedure. Can you give us some highlights uh, of the things that you ask of them or that you counsel them about? Yes, of course. So we want to make sure that um, the patient stays um, our primary priority during the procedure. We want to make sure that the family member is also safe um, and in agreement with, um, with the plan for the procedure. So um, there's a lot of counseling that goes into it, but most importantly, we want to make sure in the beginning that the family member has never had any fainting at the sight of blood um, or felt um, extremely uncomfortable if their loved one was in pain or in discomfort. And I tell them, for example, in a bronchoscopy, that the patient will cough frequently or maybe even moan during the procedure, so to expect that. Um, I tell them that we will provide a chair for them to sit in, um, and if they feel um, uneasy or dizzy, we will make sure that one of the staff who is assigned to, to watch for them, that would escort them outside the room so that I don't have to deal with two patients um, at once. And I tell them I will keep them updated during the procedure and frequently ask them if they have any questions um, but I also tell them that they shouldn't be interrupting me unless I acknowledge them and allow them to, to ask us questions so that we don't lose focus of what we're doing. Um, if we're doing something that is sterile, for example, you know, putting an indwelling pleural catheter, we tell them that this will be our field, do not interfere with it, and then make sure that they are okay wearing a mask, mm -hmm. um, that they haven't had an issue before wearing a, a mask and also a head cover. And if we're doing any uh, fluoroscopy, I tell them also, we, we will be doing a fluoroscopy. Um, so we will provide them with, a, with an apron and a thyroid shield, but obviously this will not cover their entire body or protect them entirely from radiation. Um, and I think an important one that I focus on as well as being at a university hospital, I tell them that we will have trainees that I will supervise during the procedure. And sometimes if it's a third year fellow, um, they may do the entire procedure under my supervision without me touching, you know, the scope, for example. Um, or if they're early in their training, I may be more directive and also ask inquisitive questions um, as part of teaching. So I want to make sure that they are okay with that and that this is something to be expected as part of teaching and, and this doesn't indicate that the person doesn't know, you know, what is going on. Um, but, uh, for example, you know, if I ask the fellow, tell me about the signs of, malignancy on a, on a lymph node um, that, you know, if they don't know what to answer, that's, that is not going to affect uh, what is going on during the procedure. Um, and last thing, um, just to make sure there's no dis a distraction, I keep my phone silent um, during um, the procedure and I expect them to do the same with theirs as well and, and not record what is going on um, during our procedure as well. An acknowledgement of modern life, I guess, huh? <laughs> that is that is true indeed. Yeah. So I'm, it's hard I'm, to stay offline nowadays. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious, what percentage of your patients actually decline the option of having family members there? Yeah, I'd say about a third of patients did not want family members to be in. Um, most would say that they don't want to burden them, or they wanted to be sure, you know, that my focus was on them alone. I don't have to focus on another person in the room. 
so again, out of curiosity, is that a number you thought is higher or lower than your expectations when you started this? Uh, I actually did not have many expectations um, to begin with. Um, I thought, you know, as a rule of thumb, maybe half will accept and half will decline. So um, I think it's a, it's a good number to, to look at, but I don't necessarily think it, it direct um, me much more into to who to okay. offer this to or who not. Yeah. Okay. How about family members? How many said no and why? Yeah, for them, I, I just actually had three people this week refuse to be involved, even when the patient wanted them to be there. Um, and many typically seem to be concerned about blood um, or said they had dizziness before, which is a total legitimate concern. Um, and believe it or not, if you wanted to use the time to go do something else, like grab breakfast, for example. Um, so in other cases, I remember in a few, um, the person present was the patient friend and not a family member, so they prefer to be outside for the sake of privacy. Um, frankly, also, some people don't expect us to offer them to be in there, so they just seem surprised and sometimes they know. That's interesting. And obviously, this is never going to be a unanimous um, process, but um, um, I'm actually surprised that um, more family members didn't want, didn't family members, did more patients didn't want family members there. So this is interesting perspective and it'd be interesting to see how this changes uh, over time, but that's, that's quite interesting. So yeah. how about, uh, does the presence of a family member typically prolong the duration of the procedure? Did they ask a lot of questions? Did you find that, that they added substantively to the, to the time? Yeah, great question. Again, I have to say that has not been my experience, I believe. You know, it is true that I spend a few extra minutes in the beginning to explain things and to counsel um, patients and family members, but I honestly saved this time from the end of the procedure since I'm updating the family member in the procedure room, during the procedure, and immediately at the end. So, you know, for example, in, in a bronchoscopy, if, if I'm alone, actually in every bronchoscopy, I typically take two sets of photos and I use one to explain to the family member after the procedure what we did, and I give them the copy to take with them. And so what better than them seeing the whole thing live and then just getting the photos to take with them after. Um, so I basically counsel them directly in the room at, at the end also, rather than go find them in the waiting area, bring them to a counseling room and explain everything. So I think it actually saves um, us time. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Just to give you an example also maybe of a Plurex catheter, uh, once it's in, I directly show the family member how to connect the tubing, how to drain the system. So I'm doing teaching also at the same time, because we expect a family member, if they don't have a visiting nurse, you know, to, to drain the pleurex catheter themselves. So rather than dress the catheter, reopen the dressing after the family member comes in, show them how to drain and how to dress, um, we are actually saving time by doing it right then and there. Um, you also asked uh, something about questions. Um, in my experience, I think that usually comes at the end most have responded well to us asking them not to interrupt, but I also periodically asked them if they had any questions at various points. Um, I wouldn't say uh, that there were more questions. In fact, come to think of it, I sometimes might hear something like, oh, wow, or now I understand what's going on in their lungs, for example, um, especially when I point something out like a dynamic airway collapse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I joke in a bronch when I tell husband, for example, that he knows his wife inside out now. 
So were there any extra financial costs associated with your approach, perhaps related to the presence of a nurse or other team members at the bedside who ordinarily wouldn't be during the traditional approach? Yeah, I, I have to say we haven't looked at this particular aspect, but uh, we don't usually ask for extra staff members to be present. So we often have people who are there to assist or watch and learn. So there's a few hands on deck, especially at an academic center, uh, maybe more so than in a private practice. You know, but typically we designate someone at the beginning of the procedure to be responsible for that loved one's safety and well-being in case something uh, goes wrong. So if we don't have that person, I may not, you know, ask um, the, the family member to be in. Um, but I think doing this at a teaching hospital, there's always you know, physicians in training or nurses in training that um, are readily available to offer this help that we need without additional costs. They will be there anyway. Mm -hmm. So what would you do or what have you done in the event of a complication? Say a patient develops massive hemoptysis after a transbronchial biopsy. Do you ask the family member to leave? How, do you, how would you or how have you handled something like that where uh, a little more chaotic and a little bit more stressful for the team uh, as you're trying to respond to, uh, to an acute event? Yeah, you know, thankfully we haven't had such a thing happen uh, when, a patient, uh, when a patient's loved one was there. Um, I actually think of this matter pretty frequently and try to stay prepared. Um, and when I counsel a family member in the beginning, I make sure they agree with us to leave the room, but you know, you can never be sure. Um, again, this has not happened yet with me. And I think part of my assessment at the beginning, as much as possible, is to make sure that that accompanying person will not be troublesome during the procedure. Um, you know, the person assigned to them is counseled to make sure they don't interfere in such a case. Um, and I think if we want to extrapolate from ICU practices, when there is a complication or a patient codes, for example, you know, you don't want a distraction um, when you're caring for a patient. So even if a family member stays nearby, especially during a code, which is probably the worst, you know, quote unquote complication that could happen, uh, we want them to be within our immediate work area, you know, to see their loved one, but also be safe. Um, and also be informed. So, um, you know, since you've thought of this question, do you have any suggestions or recommendations? Because I haven't had, you know, such a thing happen with the family member present. So neither have I, but I've been in circumstances where, um, you know, the situation, although it's controlled, can appear chaotic and, and, and you have to make decisions on the fly. And, and sometimes you have to you know, get the attention of other staff members and, and direct them in a way that to, a, to an uneducated um, observer may seem like it's disorganized or that um, there's not a, a, a process that we approach these. So, um, so I worry that, that there will be a different impression left with a family member in response to a circumstance that, that we've got control over, but may not seem that way. So, so I probably, um, I must say, I would probably ask that a family member leave at that point uh, with the explanation that, that, you know, we've got to have, there are going to be more people in the room uh, and that we've got to be as efficient and, and really as focused as possible. Uh, and then obviously promise that we will keep them up to date. So that would be my, that would be my, my approach, you know, um, at this point. But again, I think, um, I think there are, there are potential arguments suggesting in, that if they're going to be present during the, the routine time that, 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 um, you know, there should be a commitment to have them there the whole time. So I, that would be my initial, my initial mm -hmm. thought, but, but certainly um, would be subject 
to change if I had direct experience with with this. Um, yeah, that's quite true. Yeah, it's been interesting to see what if it does happen in in your hands. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you'll be able to develop your own experience and 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 really assess the pros and cons in that standpoint. But it's interesting. That's one of the you know one of the interesting parts of a discussion about about something that we've done or something that you're doing that is different from the traditional practice. So this is, this is a fun and provocative okay. part. So one of the things yeah. that, that people have raised is, is there a connection or a risk um, uh, in having family presence during procedures and the subsequent risk, risk of litigation? Again, should a complication happen or is there, is mm -hmm. that a real concern and do you have any experience with it or any data about, uh, about real life circumstances? Yeah, um, you, you know, on one hand, um, um, if I have a pretty established relationship with a patient, that simplifies, I think, making the decision to include them. And if I'm assessing the tone and body language of a family member or a friend or an ex of kin, especially if this is, you know, a new consult, for example, in the hospital, and we're going to do a procedure immediately, then I'm trying to do this assessment at the same time and see if the person could potentially cause trouble or distraction. So maybe I should keep them outside of the room. Um, but uh, in our article, we listed only one case. We, we found a couple, you know, online that were news reports and bulletins of um, hospitals that were sued. But um, outside of the cases where the family member got injured, we did not find any particular data on direct correlation between presence of a family member during a procedure and risk of litigation. Um, could there be something out there that is not published, um, possibly? Um, but, you know, on the other hand, there are many articles that talk of the benefit of family presence mm -hmm. with children in colonoscopies, even in codes, without talking of additional lawsuits in, in such a cases. So one of the, one of the, I think one of the important and fun parts of, of your experiences is really learning uh, how this process was perceived by the various stakeholders. So let's talk about the feedback that you've gotten and that, that, that you talked about in the article from the different folks. So first, let's start with the patients. What was the general feedback from patients? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, patients um, and families who were included seem to be all for it. Um, the ones that, you know, obviously accepted. Uh, feedback was mostly informal, but we heard a lot of appreciation. Um, many said they felt at ease, much less anxious than, you know, waiting outside. And, and they were glad that a loved one was there and, and many said they understood better how you know things function like a plurex catheter how um, lungs um, you know work when a patient coughs when there's a lot of phlegm or mucus impaction so um, this was uh, I thought this was received reasonably well by people and we I think include in our article a few comments from uh, from patients who felt at ease by uh, being accompanied by uh, by family members who were in the room with them. And, you know, for family members also, um, I still remember that uh, lady who said that, you know, she made this decision to be with her husband for better or for worse, and she was so happy that she could be there for her, her husband to receive a plurex catheter for a malignant effusion. Um, and my own fellow was very, um, I think, um, uh, you know, appreciative of, of the comment that he heard um, about um, her presence being there. So um, I think we haven't had any, you know, particular um, comments from patients or families that besides appreciation for being there and, and feeling much more at ease of being inside. Good. 
How about nurses? How about how about your nursing staff? What was their what was their uh, feedback? Yeah, so um, I think it's important for me to say that um, I want to be very very clear that we never ever want to be or want to do things against people's wills or levels of comfort. You know, whether it's patients, family members, or our team members. So this is where discussion with our team member in the beginning plays a major role. Um, so I, the last thing I would want is go to the patient and the family and, to, and they both agreed to be there, but then someone says no from the team and then we're, we're rescinding the offer. That wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> a, a great lead off. So uh, in one instance, the nurse who had just finished training, um, you know, to be um, a, a, you know, to be certified in, in sedation, did not feel very comfortable. It was actually her first case. So we thought, you know, let's just focus on the patient and on her, doing her first procedure well without, you know, having um, to have any additional uh, maybe distractions in the room for her. Um, but most of them were, you know, pretty um, happy about this. Um, they even gave me feedback that um, they think it was, a, it was kind of us to include family members in there. And they also had their discussions with them before and after. So, so that was uh, neat. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think you asked about, trainees if if i recall yeah it really followed up on something that you had mentioned early on that that you make it a specific point to explain to the family that you work with trainees and i can imagine especially for uh, you know an earlier fellow that it it could be intimidating to do a procedure with the family there so how what was the what was the feedback from your fellows or or frankly other other learners that are in the room yeah, so, uh, you know, a, a few trainees, I, I think the level of um, comfort of, of trainees in general, whether they're in first, second, or third year fellowship, um, will change, will vary. Um, and I think some of this will come to maybe a personality, uh, to their personality. So a few are not actually sure in the beginning. And then we did some counseling, and most actually agreed. Um, and others were pretty much all for it. Um, so... Um, I think apprehension is something that uh, we want to you know, lay to, to rest and obviously make sure that um, uh, we're not doing something against a trainees um, because they have a big say in this. So if a fellow tells me, um, you know, I think for this um, procedure, I, I would want to be, you know, alone um, with you, then, then we will do it like that just to make sure that uh, they do their you know, procedure well and learn well and not be intimidated by having someone else in there. But we haven't had, I think, major um, uh, issues with fellows refusing procedures. And um, I want to also make sure that they're not intimidating by me asking them, right. you know, right. to include the patient. So they have to, they are fully, you know, free to say yes or no. Um, and I think on the other hand, some actually said they had, you know, much more, I guess, maybe interpersonal um, understanding or better communication uh, with patients and families after that. So um, they appreciated this. Um, but um, we also have, you know, sometimes respiratory therapy trainees or nursing trainees in there. And um, I don't, I haven't heard any, you know, negative feedback from them as well. So were you surprised by any particular patients or family reactions, things that were unanticipated um, after the, after the uh, procedure? Yeah, I don't recall anything crazy, but there's a lot of reactions that 
um, say people were um, understanding things better, um, but also a few were just amazed that we could let them be there. Um, so um, I, I think uh, there's a, I'm, I'm laughing also because uh, um, there was a, there was a lady who was just saying, wow, every time I was showing her part of her husband's lungs. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, like I said, things look, look a lot, I don't think I've said it, actually, um, but I joke sometimes that, hey, things look a lot cleaner on a bronchoscopy than on a colonoscopy. So, <laughs> um, yeah, overall, I don't think I heard um, anything crazy. I actually, you know, one of the patients, I think his wife was having EDAC, and uh, um, that helped him advocate, I think, better for her to use her CPAP so that, you know, she could, uh, she could overcome this. Um, when sleeping. So it was, I think it was cool for him to see that. And um, he eventually said that, oh, yes, now he understands what it means, mm-hmm. you know, for her to, to having that need for the CPAP um, at night. So, yeah. So as, as part of the preparation um, for, for this podcast and, and after going over your paper in detail, I actually spoke to and informally polled of a number of my colleagues uh, here at Penn. And it turns out that uh, a couple of them had actually uh, in fact, had patients' families present specifically during thoracentesis, and and generally um, they were in favor of this kind of a practice in theory, uh, but raised some caveats that we've already addressed in terms of the issues of potentially prolonging the procedure, et cetera. But I'm just curious, what, what did your colleagues uh, in Oklahoma think? Have they generally embraced your practice? Have they raised concerns or, or other concerns that we haven't, uh, we haven't discussed yet? Yeah, that's a very good question. And thank you for including um, the information about, uh, you know, polling your, your own colleagues as well. And I think to some degree, most, you know, practitioners will have um, family members present for procedures without them necessarily realizing that, oh, we are actually doing this. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, thoracentesis or maybe a chest tube or, um, or something like that, maybe outside of, you know, a bronchoscopy suite, for example. So uh, this is something that I discussed in our section meeting um, a few times, and um, many people, including uh, the program director for the fellowship here, um, is in favor, and we're looking at, you know, potentially doing something more uh, prospective and, um, and maybe uh, apply for, for a grant and see if one of our fellows would be interested in, in taking that project uh, for the future. Um, to see if, if this is something that, um, you know, because we, we've done some informal uh, feedback polling from our patients and families and others, but see if we can have something more stringent um, and, um, you know, in a, in a more of a research environment uh, for this. So um, I think people have been in favor. Um, some actually, uh, they haven't um, because they said they haven't practiced this for you know, the, the few decades that have been in practice. And um, sometimes it's hard to, I think, change practice. But I, I personally find it's, it's actually fun to do these things, um, just like you do a, a pres- an old procedure in a different way. Right. It's good to learn that. Um, interestingly, um, a couple of our fellows the other day came and said, um, hey, Dr. Kibbe, we learned from you. We actually, with, you know, Dr. So-and-so, we, we asked the patient if they want the family member to be there and, and they wanted and the patient agreed. Then we spoke with our attending and, and they said, yes. So, uh, so we, we did this. <laughs> and uh, so it's exciting to see that the fellows are kind of catching, you know, 
um, to the vision and, and that the other attendees also did not uh, object to them being in there. So do I say that this is an institution-wide practice here? Um, no, not yet. Uh, will this become one? Um, I sure hope so. And hopefully we can have, um, you know, plans in place uh, to make sure that um, all parties involved are uh, well up to speed on, on what the process is. Great. So is there one procedure that you think or in your experience has been more suitable to having family members present like a thoracentesis where the family can actually interact with the patient? You know, this has been under local and then they can provide the kind of comfort and, uh, you know, um, uh, support. Um, or do you think um, that overall um, there's a wider range of procedures that this works well for? Yeah. Um, you know, I think um, procedures that are done um, with local anesthesia um, would be a great place to start. So if someone wants to do this, but is somewhat apprehensive, I think, you know, something like a thoracentesis um, with, you know, a very low risk of complications, especially if done with an ultrasound, mm -hmm. um, would be a good place to start. And, and then maybe if they want to look into something that is more um, invasive, um, then maybe an indwelling pleuric catheter would be a good place to go, making right. sure, you know, the sterile field is not, um, um, is not exposed in any way or right. um, is not invaded in any way. So I think these would be a great places mm -hmm. to start. And, you know, conscious sedation is something that could be done. There's usually no sterile field during, you know, bronchoscopy. So you don't have to worry about that, but obviously, it might be, it's a bit more invasive than, than maybe a thoracentesis, but also would be a good practice to see what, you know, what a family member or a loved one would do. Um, in terms of general anesthesia, uh, I, I'm not quite sure, honestly, um, of the benefit of maybe, you know, a patient being right. um, in there when they're completely unconscious and maybe even paralyzed um, when, you know, a family member is there. So, we want obviously the the patient to receive the most benefit um, from this procedure. So if if they they are completely unconscious, and then I'm not sure what um, you know the primary benefit for them would be. Their family member might be more informed, less anxious. Um, it's it's a good question um, to have. If this is done in the OR again, that's maybe a different round. Um, you know, as a um, as a restaurant director, of my institution, I have you know, full control over the bronchoscopy suite, but not over the OR. So, so that also plays into how many parties are involved. Um, and, you know, some procedures have a pretty high risk of complications. For example, I do cryobiopsies for ILD, and, and those could have, you know, moderate bleeding or yep. pneumothorax. So, um, so this might, uh, you know, be more involved in terms of my hands and all of my attention than maybe a simple thoracentesis. So... Um, yeah. Mostly, what, what I have been my practice is just conscious sedation and and local anesthesia. And that certainly makes sense. And then, and thank you for bringing that up because at our institution, for example, virtually all of our bronchoscopies are now done under general with LMA, et cetera, so that the patients are really um, not interactive. And um, and then I wonder whether or not, yeah, there may be a benefit to the family member, but but uh, in the in the setting of sort of patient centered care, I think the impact would probably um, be less than, than if the patient were interactive and awake. So, so thank you for uh, addressing that. So yeah. I guess, how do you plan to study this or evaluate this further, or perhaps maybe establish a best practice 
beyond what you've already done locally? Are you planning to roll this out to, you know, other institutions in the area, et cetera? So what are your, what are your plans moving forward with this? Yeah, great question. I hope this podcast actually helps us get uh, this more, um, you know, mainline. And um, I hope that this article will lead people, you know, to see how this is um, not just provocative, but also um, an innovation and hopefully something to, to push other practitioners to, to do so um, now and in the future. Um, I think, you know, maybe a multi-institutional collaboration would be good. For, from our standpoint, um, you know, I would love for us to, um, you know, have this done in a more prospective approach where we can, um, you know, document um, maybe also uh, with anonymous surveys from nurses, trainees of what, you know, they, they thought, what they felt about these things, um, document, you know, patients' apprehensions um, and family members are also their anxiety level before or after the procedure in a prospective way, um, see about, um, you know, maybe having this statement, uh, these statements that I use for counseling, and maybe if we can have this as a part of the, um, the consent um, as well. So maybe make the patient sign a consent for the procedure and the family members sign a consent for uh, the things we uh, counsel them or ask them to do or not to do um, in the room. Um, and also we want to make sure that, um, you know, if this obviously is, like you said, uh, a patient-centered approach. So make sure that the patient um, has um, felt better uh, with their family member in the room, but also, you know, the family member um, being more involved in care or also, you know, feeling more um, involved in decision-making um, if, if they are actually present in the room and maybe they can help their patients. So um, we're discussing these thoughts actually um, here among our fellows, among um, a few faculty in our uh, program director for the fellowship to see uh, how we can make this um, maybe a prospective study um, in our institution. And hopefully maybe other institutions will do the same and maybe we can do um, you know, a multiple institution collaboration, like I said, and maybe have a grant um, to look at this, you know, one area um, to look at is, um, for example, having a, a person like a liaison um, specialist. Um, I know in my fellowship, we had a family liaison person whose role was to just talk to families in the intensive care unit. And I thought her presence was um, excellent. And, and she did a lot of things, including alleviating anxiety, explaining things. She had a background in nursing in the ICU and in social working. So she was excellent doing this and, you know, having someone like that maybe who's assigned to procedures um, would, uh, would, would the main focus of the family member, I think would be great, which brings us back to your question about cost. So there's obviously cost involved, but um, can we justify this to, you know, to the payers and to the institution? Uh, these are all things that I think uh, deserve looking at. And hopefully we'll get an update on where things stand um, in the future. This is something that, uh, that I, yeah, I hope, you know, spurs discussion, not only at academic centers, but also in, in other practice settings, including the community. So, so this is really, really very interesting. And I think um, I'm hoping that, uh, that we spur more discussion uh, from, from having done this. So any, any last thoughts or comments uh, about your experience? Yeah, I would like to thank you first 
you know, for this opportunity. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to discuss this with you. It's something that is dear um, to my heart and uh, to our practice. And I hope that um, other people would, you know, would see the vision and do so, um, I think, cautiously and patiently and, um, and, and in an informed way um, in their own practice and see the benefit from it. Um, and like I said, uh, um, I think uh, uh, I have seen, you know, how this um, uh, approach has been beneficial to patients and to family members, and we would love to um, to see if other people have the same um, uh, have the same findings, the same outcomes, and uh, it would be great to have uh, even differing opinions. You know, where we can sit on the same table and discuss them in an informed way and see how we can help improve one another's approach and practice, you know, for the sake of, of our patients and, and their loved ones. Well, that was well said. And again, I'd like to thank you very much, Dr. Kebe, for taking the time to participate in the podcast. And to our audience, I hope you enjoyed this discussion as, as much as I did. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of ATS. Thank you for listening.